Good morning. For those of you that might be new here, here for the first time, it's really, really good to have you with us this morning. My name is Dave, and I'm the pastor of preaching here at Four Oaks. And uh, if you are a guest, we are quite aware that Sunday morning is kind of the sweet spot of the weekend, and so we're very grateful that you chose to share it with, with us this morning. So, after a four-week reprieve to make room for our Easter and post-Easter series, over the last four weeks we've been studying what happens after Christ died and what happens after we die, we are now this morning back into our series on the book of Acts. So, for our guests, the series is titled Unconquered, Unconquered, and it may appear like a, just a shameless ripoff from the Seminole Nation, but actually it was chosen to illustrate the unstoppable, unconquering nature of the gospel itself. And that's what we've been studying in Acts, because Acts is a chronicle of how the gospel breaks out among the disciples and then beyond the disciples, and really marches across the world, across ethnic borders and racial borders and geographical barriers and and all those things until it reaches us here this morning. And so this morning we're going to pick up in Acts 29. You can go ahead and turn there. The title of this morning's message is What Mission Means. What Mission Means. And while you are turning, let me just set the stage a little bit where we left off and where we're picking up today. So Paul has just been rescued from an angry mob. So Paul was taken into custody. He was viewed to be disrupting the peace. And he was taken into custody by a Roman governor named Lysias. And he is now, or just prior to this, was under the protection of about 470 Roman soldiers who, uh, who took him then to Felix. Felix was the governor over the whole land at that time. And Felix ordered Paul's accusers to come down to Caesarea where Felix was in order to testify in person against Paul. So this, this whole thing is being set up because there's going to be a trial where Paul will be featured. And that story picks up then in chapter 24 beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, into every way and everywhere we accept this all with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this, this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. 
Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several days, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make this accusation, should should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today knowing that each and every time that we open your word, we are dependent upon you. We are dependent upon the work of thy Holy Spirit. And we ask you to meet us today. Lord, we are We are needy people. We need to to receive from you. We need to hear from you. We need to encounter you. And so we pray you would meet us as we study chapter 24. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 1914, Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer, placed the following advertisement in the London newspapers. He did it to recruit for an expedition that he had coming up that was going to the North Pole. Wanted, the advertisement read. Men for a hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, 
honor and recognition in case of success. Now, is that, is that an odd way to advertise or what? That's one of the most unusual tactics I have ever seen to try to sell a journey. You know, join me to be cold, poorly paid, and probably dead. You know, no, I think I'll go to Destin instead. Not the way it makes you think. But listen, Shackleton was certainly no fool. In other words, he wanted the people that would join him to understand what the mission really cost, what this mission really meant. I think of chapter 24 of the book of Acts in the same way, and I believe it's set in Scripture for a similar purpose. Because Paul is near the end of his missionary journeys. In fact, he's completed all three of them by this time. And by the way, remember, those are adventures that included, according to what he wrote to the Corinthians, countless beatings, often near death, 39 lashes on five different occasions, three times he was beaten with rods, once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked, it's, it's really difficult to fathom the inestimable cost that this man paid to engage in the gospel mission in his life. And we begin to see as we read chapter 24 just what it seemed to cost Paul. And I believe it's there because there's something that this is supposed to say to us as well. So I want to ask you a question. What comes to your mind? when you think about the gospel mission that you are called to? What comes to your mind when you think about reaching your one life? Do you feel kind of anxious at the anticipation of trying to reach out to somebody that you might not have a relationship with in the way that you feel like you should in order to reach them? Or maybe the idea... Maybe there's a thrill that comes to your mind over seeing new doors open for the gospel and that excites you on some level. Or maybe you've actually shared with somebody and they've received Jesus Christ and you have that that swell of praise in your soul as you see somebody who's trusting Jesus in a new way. And thankfully, all of that can be a part of the gospel mission. But Luke, who, by the way, is the writer of the book of Acts, Luke also uses the entire last third of Acts, to play the role of what Ernest Shackleton played, to remind us up front of what the mission really means, what it means in all of its glory and what it means in all of its sacrifice as well. So chapter 24 is helping us to comprehend something that is true in a historical sense for the Apostle Paul but, you know, it's, it's true for us as well. So what I want to look at together is I want to look at what the mission really meant for Paul. And I think that will help us to bridge over and understand what the mission at times means for us as well. So what did the mission really mean for Paul? First point is the mission meant trials. The mission meant trials. So chapter 4 continues an experience, as I just noted, that is, that is prominent throughout the latter half of Acts, which is Paul under trial. Paul had to defend himself against the Roman tribunal. That happened already. He had to defend himself against the Jewish council. Again, happened already. 
He has to defend himself in chapter 4 against Felix. He will have to defend himself in chapter 25 against Festus. Agrippa is coming up as well. A total of five different defenses that Paul has to offer in the book of Acts. You know, for most of us, we say, man, what, you know, I'm really in a trial right now. I'm really experiencing a trial right now. When we say that, it's figurative. For Paul in Acts, it was literal. His trials were his trials, if you get my meaning. His trials were the fact that, that he was often in a courtroom. In other words, the mission for Paul often put him in a courtroom defending his faith. So, as this chapter opens up, Paul is before a judge. He's before the governor. His name is Felix, Roman governor. Felix. Felix was a governor who was known for being one of the most ruthless governors in the history of Rome. And he was particularly ruthless in dealing with the Jews. One historian wrote that Felix and his cohorts, quote, everywhere they went, they brought a desert and they called it peace. You know what that means is that everywhere they went, they, they snuffed out all signs of life and then they spun it publicly to act like that was their attempts at preserving the peace, at protecting the peace. And just to give you a sense of how cold-blooded this guy really was, Felix was ultimately called back to Rome because the new emperor thought he was too brutal in the way he dealt with people. The new emperor's name was Nero, one of the cruelest emperors that Rome ever had. You know, it's like note to self. When Nero thinks you're too cruel, you are way beyond beating up kittens. I mean, you are possessed by the enemy. So that's, that, that's Felix. That's the guy who is the judge in the case. The prosecuting attorney is a guy named Tertullus. Tertullus is a Greek name, but it's a Greek name for a Jewish attorney. He is basically the Sanhedrin, the ruling parties. He's their hired gun to try the case. And you can see just from the outset how much of a, a suck-up he was by his opening words in beginning all the way in verse 2 and 3, where he comes out of the gate saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. You know, he just goes on and on. And by the way, it was common back then when you were addressing someone in authority to open up with praise, so that's not unusual. But to ascribe peace to Felix was nothing short. I mean, it wasn't simply unblushing flattery. It was just, it was just bizarre. I mean, it's like him standing there saying, this is, this is amazing. Is that a new toga? Have you lost weight, Felix? You are looking really good. He's basically trying to ingratiate himself to Felix. And so he goes on. And he lists the specific charges that were really just trumped up. Trumped up charges to ensure that Paul would be judged harshly. And they're outlined beginning in verse 5. And there's three different charges that are brought against Paul. First, that Paul stirs up riots, which, by the way, would be certain to secure Felix's attention and his bias against Paul because he was responsible to the emperor to preserve the peace within that region. 
So Paul stirs up pride. Secondly, that Paul is the ringleader for this sect. In other words, he's not simply a representative. He's not just a tool of the sect. He is a driving force in this sect called the Nazarenes. And then lastly, that Paul had profaned the temple, which was certainly to antagonize the Jews that were present. And by the way, Felix's wife, Drusilla, was Jewish. So we're going to talk about Paul's response to all this in just a second. But the point that I'm trying to make right now is that mission meant trials. And I want to just take a step back and look at something important that's happening throughout the entire book of Acts. Because in most of the latter part of the entire book of Acts, most of the latter third, I should say, Paul is in prison. Paul is making these defenses. And it's funny as we read it, you know, it's all, it's not the macro picture at all of what God is doing. It's really about Paul and some of the people he's standing before, some of the prison situations that he's in, some of the defenses that he's given. And it can almost seem like the mission has been stalled. And I think it's really important to look at this because I'm making the point that the mission meant trials, but I want to say that the fact that the mission meant trials doesn't mean the mission meant failure. Because we have to remember that the the entire climate within the New Testament towards the gospel that was going forward was not a, a support group that's enthusiastically affirming all of the believers and everything that they're saying. It was oppression. It was persecution. It was martyrdom in some cases. We've already seen the persecution that took place in Acts chapter 8, the stoning of Stephen that took place a little later, and yet the gospel flourished. And that's really good to remember that that the very situation where the gospel was first preached was not the situation that was conducive to the gospel going forward, but it was against forces and governments and people and ideologies that were entirely opposed to the proclamation of the gospel. And it's good to remember, particularly now, because we can be tempted to kind of fret over the moral climate of the country in which we live. And there's no question these days are are growing darker. I mean, the issue of race is more polarizing than it's been in in many years. There's riots this past week in Baltimore. Supreme Court is hearing cases on same-sex marriage, and and, and, and there's there's increasingly a scorn towards believers, a scorn towards Christians within the United States. It's it's at an all-time high as they are affirming certain biblical truths, and in response to affirming those biblical truths, they are being labeled as narrow, bigoted hate mongers. And I'm sad to observe that I don't think that's going to improve. I I think the day is going to come where more of what happened with Paul is going to happen here in the United States. It's already happening in other parts of the countries. I believe it's going to visit us as well. But what we can be encouraged by as we read passages like this is that in the New Testament, the gospel didn't just survive persecution. It thrived under persecution. It didn't just barely kind of escape extinction. It went viral when persecution and oppression began to take place. And that's not unusual. I mean, back in the late 40s when the Cultural Revolution took place in China and the, 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 
the supreme ruler of China, Mao Zedong, decided that he wanted to exterminate Christianity from the nation. He decided to do this, this purge, the cultural revolution. And he, 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 had, he sent 10,000 missionaries, every missionary he could find in China, back home, packing back to their nation. And then he turned around and began to imprison Christian leaders all over the place. And he just wanted to, to do anything he could to stamp out Christianity. What was the result? Well, the result is that the gospel spread like wildfire. The result is there's more Christians in China right now than there are in the United States. Over like 160 million Christians in China right now. Reminds me of a well-known quote from G.K. Chesterton. He once said, quote, At least five times the Christian faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. And in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. So, yeah, the mission means trials. The mission meant trials for Paul. The mission will mean trials for us. But trials meant that the unconquered gospel might ultimately spread more rapidly. Trials meant that the dog was about to give up the ghost. It happened then. It will happen in our day as well. So we do not need to fear. Second point. Mission meant trials. Mission meant a clear conscience. Mission meant clear conscience. Let's jump back into the text. So, so Tertullus ends what he wants to say in verse 8, his accusations. And the governor then turns to Paul and says to he gives Paul the nod in verse 10. In other words, go ahead, give me your response. And so Paul begins his defense. And like Tertullus, Paul gives the, you know, the obligatory customary affirmation up front, which if you read it, is really considerably less flattering than what Tertullus says. He just says, knowing that for many years you've been a judge, I'm glad to give my, my defense before you. And then Paul begins to methodically answer point by point, charge by charge, each of the charges that were given. So to the charge of stirring up riots, Paul says in verse 12 that he neither disputed anyone nor did he stir up the crowd in any way. To the charge of running a sect, Paul says in verse 14, I know nothing about a sect. I worship God. I believe in the law. I believe in the prophets. And I believe in the resurrection. And that's why I'm here. And then to the charge of profaning the temple, he says in verse 17, I wasn't there destroying the temple. I wasn't there profaning the temple. I was there to give alms to the temple. In other words, I wasn't tearing it down. I was giving to it. It's the exact opposite of what they say. Now, what I want to do for a second is I want to just, I just, want to just freeze the frame in the middle of Paul's defense. Because Paul makes a statement that he's made in a number of other places, a number of other churches that he's written to, a number of other epistles that he's written. And he makes a statement that I want to read to you and I want to illustrate, I want to talk a little bit about, where in verse 16, right in the middle of his defense, he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, if you read the entirety of Paul's corpus, which is just another way to say everything that Paul wrote, 
you would honestly be surprised, you would be somewhat unprepared for the frequency and the importance that he attaches to this idea of a clear conscience. In the last time we were in Acts, in Acts chapter 23, Paul's before Roman council. You probably don't remember this because this was like four or five weeks ago, but he's before Roman council. He's been arrested. He was about to be flogged. Paul claims citizenship, and then he stands before them, and in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, he says, Paul looked intently at the council, and Paul said, this is his opening remarks, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He tells the Romans in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ, he says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, here in verse 16, he says, So I always take great pains with a clear conscience toward both God and man. So, so there's a sense where it's really important to Paul that his listeners understand that, it, that, that he lived his life And he led his people, and he sought to love others with a clear conscience. And the question that I have is, if if it's so important to him, I think it probably, I wonder if it's supposed to be really important to us as well. So we have to understand this thing of conscience and, and what it is. So let me do my best, take my best shot at defining what a conscience is for you. A conscience is the voice of the soul. Conscience is the voice of the soul. It dwells within us, whether we know God or not, whether we are a believer or unbeliever, we have a conscience. A conscience, it, it sees our highest internal standard, whatever standard we might have inside of us, whether it's there because of God whether it's there because of our community or our family or our heritage, it it sees our highest internal standard and it calls us to it. That's what a conscience does. It identifies our our highest internal standard and calls us to it. In other words, there's a sense where the conscience is the voice of the soul speaking back our morality to us whether our morality is good or bad, whether it's accurate, biblical or not, it's speaking it back to us. So it entreats us to act consistently with what we think is right, and it discourages us from doing what we think is wrong. That's why Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, called the conscience the soul reflecting upon itself. So I remember being... 10 years old, lying in my bed. By the way, this wasn't the last time my conscience bothered me. It was just the illustration that came to mind. 10 years old, lying in bed, feeling guilty because I had begun to curse. Take the Lord's name in vain, curse, using different words. And my parents had always taught me, my mom in particular, that that was wrong. But I was feeling this this stab of blame within Now, I was not converted at that time, but I was feeling something that was fomenting within me, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm beginning to to feel and to hear these these ideas that I'm condemned. 
So what was going on there? Well, again, my parents, my community taught me that was wrong. My soul was reflecting back upon itself, and I began to be convinced that I had begun, I had done something wrong there. Now, eventually, I silenced my conscience in that particular area and grew quite proficient at cursing. But that illustration displays how I, I originally had a voice, and I ultimately ignored that voice. So the conscience isn't necessarily putting anything into us. You know, the Word of God comes from outside of us, gets put into us. It, it's simply witnessing to what's already there. It's like the voicemail on an iPhone. You know, you, you push the button, and it simply tells us the message that's recorded within. Now, when we think about conscience within Scripture, we see that conscience can exist in different states. A conscience can be a strong conscience. It can be a weak conscience. There's this other category in Scripture where it can be a seared conscience. Seared. Paul talks about that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. And one moves from a strong to a weak, a weak to a seared, based upon the attention they give to the conscience or whether they ignore the conscience. So what I was saying earlier about becoming proficient in cursing began to take place because my conscience, which at one time was strong, began to weaken and eventually became seared in that area. If you're interested in a biblical illustration of this, there's one in 1 Timothy verses chapter 1, verse 19, where there are these two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Both of them were in the church. Both of them were Christians. Both of them, or at least Hymenaeus, was once a leader. But Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander and says that they have rejected a good conscience. And so they, they had a strong conscience. They had a good conscience. It went from a good conscience to a weak conscience. And then he's, Paul uses the word, their consciences have become seared, and they've rejected the faith and a good conscience. And then he says what happened is their faith became shipwrecked. And so for the believer, you know, having a, a good conscience is important, and then starting to deny and ignore the conscience ultimately can have a shipwrecking effect on our faith and the entire slide happens according to how we respond to that voice of the soul. So the fact that we have a conscience doesn't mean that that conscience is, is an authority. You know, those differing categories of strong and weak and, and seared is, is why we don't endow conscience with, with authority. So, uh, you know, and I'm dating myself on this. So as Jiminy Cricket said, let your conscience be your guide. Well, that's great if you're, you have a conscience that's, been, that's had, been loaded up with good things. But if you're Hitler or you're Hymenaeus or you're Felix, you don't want to let your conscience be your guide, your conscience to be your authority. And that's, that's exactly what we read about with Felix because we discover in chapter 24 that Felix is listening to Paul often. In fact, he's bringing Drusilla in, his wife, who left her husband to live with Felix. So this is as dysfunctional a couple as you're going to find. And, and, and Felix is calling Paul to come and speak to him. Paul's pulling no punches whatsoever. He's talking to him about righteousness, talking to him about self-control, talking to him about the judgment that, that's going to come. And verse 25 says that Felix was alarmed. And then he said, 
go away for the present. And then in verse 26 it says, but he used to sneak back and he used to listen to Paul. He'd go back often. And you wonder whether there wasn't a sense where, you know, he's being drawn. His conscience is saying, you know, what you did with Drusilla, that, that, was, that was wrong. That was, that was out of line. Because he, he basically convinced Drusilla to leave her last husband at the age of 16 and join him. And so he's, he's rejecting Paul, but he's being drawn back to Paul. Rejecting Paul, being drawn back to Paul. And yet the chapter ends with Felix being replaced, going back to Rome, and leaving Paul in prison. And the message couldn't be more clear at the end of chapter 24, that Felix ignored the message. He ignored the voice, and he was just moving on with his life. And his conscience was his guide. It was a seared conscience. J.I. Packer once said, quote, The degree of sharp-sightedness which our consciences show in detecting our own real sins is an index of how well we really know God and how close to him we really walk. An index, in other words, of the real quality of our spiritual life. So let's make this practical. How how do we read the index, to use the word of Packer, the index of our conscience? Maybe another way to ask the question is, how, how do we avoid following Felix? What are some of the ways that we can avoid following Felix? How do we know when we're avoiding him? Here's one first point. First point is, you know you're avoiding following Felix when there are areas in your life that you can point to where you take, to use the words of Acts 24, great pains to have a clear conscience. Again, verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience. Are there any areas of your life right now where you are taking pains to have a clear conscience? You are acting decisively in order to have a clear conscience. Statement number two. We are known more. This is how how to avoid following Felix. We are known more by pursuing godliness than defending our liberties. We are known more for pursuing godliness than defending our liberties. Let me ask you a question. Are you known for defending the liberty that you have in Christ more than you are known for being a passionate follower of Jesus Christ? It is not hard, particularly in an affluent culture, it is not hard to lose the distinctions between law, liberty, and license and to forget the joys and the protections that come from a clear conscience. Because when you have a believer that has a liberty without a robust conscience or without a sense of discretion or without a sense of how their decisions and their behavior can impact other Christians, when you have a believer like that, Scripture calls them a fool because they're, they're making decisions as if they don't live in community. They're making decisions as if they have no responsibility for the other people around them. Yes, celebrating Spurgeon's example of smoking cigars for the glory of God can be a legitimate thing to do if we have a clear conscience to do it. But also, let's not ignore Spurgeon's example of compassion, of generosity, 
of godliness, of how the man loved Jesus and dedicated his life to Jesus, of his commitment to his local church. So are you known more for pursuing godliness than you are for defending your liberties? Point three, we are growing more attentive to what is exalted in our choices and our behavior. We're growing more attentive. We're more attentive this year than we were last year of what is really the statement that's really being made from our behavior and our choices. Yeah, there's no question. There is a danger of living too preoccupied with how we appear in front of one another. Scripture calls it man-pleasing. Scripture calls it the fear of man. Proverbs 29 says the fear of man will prove to be a snare. We have to avoid the fear of man. Living for how you appear in front of other people, keying off of their perception of you and making your decisions based upon that is unwise and ultimately puts us into bondage. But there is also an equal tragedy to never consider how one appears or the statement that our life can make upon others or the influence that our life can have upon other people because we are called by God. Well, Philippians chapter 1, verse 24, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this question. Is the question of how this appears or the question of will this stumble anyone, is that even on our radar? Is that a question that we ever traffic in as believers? Because if we find that that's a question that we're always reacting to, a question that we'd never even ponder, that there might be some misunderstanding we have about how our relationship with God should operate within the community and within the world. Last application. Our confessions of sin have specificity. Our confessions of sin have specificity. In other words, part of the way that we know that our conscience is active and our conscience is growing stronger, is that it is stabbed by an awareness of sin, and we are not afraid to name the sin. Because without godly sorrow, without a a godly conscience, there is no godly sorrow. And without godly sorrow, repentance doesn't ultimately manifest. Our, Our confessions become, you know, to one another within our marriage or us to our children, or to our siblings, or wherever it plays out. You know, we have a confession, and we feel guilty of sin, but we leave it nice and broad, nice and vague, where basically we're confessing nothing. You know, we're like a politician on TV. If I did anything wrong, if I did anything that hurt you, if there might be any guilt wherever in my soul, I want to apologize for that. That's not the voice of an active conscience. That's not the voice of a conviction that comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God names sins because the Spirit of God knows that the Savior has come to resolve the problem for that sin. So we're not afraid to turn to our spouse and say, I was angry. We're not afraid to turn to our mates, our our friends, and say, yeah, I I was lusting. We're honest, and we're able to name the sin because we have a Savior who died for that sin. Jesus didn't die because we might hurt one another occasionally in a generic way. 
No, he died for, for wrath and anger and lust and all of the things that were fearful at times, the name. But naming them is actually an expression of our maturity and our growth in godliness. You know, Paul's in prison. Paul's, Paul's defending his life here, but he doesn't give his heart a pass. You know, it's not like he's saying, well, because I'm really having a hard time and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm defending myself and I'm before Felix and having all these challenges, I don't even need to be worried about sin. No, he says, I'm paying attention to my heart. I want to have a clear conscience because mission meant clear conscience. Here's the third and last major point. Mission meant testifying under fire. Testifying under fire. So, so Paul gives his defense, and in his defense, Paul conceded nothing. In, in fact, Paul seizes the offensive, and he begins to question their legal claim to even bring an accusation against them. So he's kind of going on the, the offense here. And in verses 18 and 19, he basically says, who accused me? Where are they? I don't see them around anywhere. It was the Jews from Asia, but they haven't even bothered to come here at all. Where are they? They should be here to present their claims. But here's what's so interesting, what Paul does, is he then, he then becomes a witness, not to defend himself, but he becomes a witness for Jesus. He says, this is why I'm here. I'm here because I believe in God. I'm here because I believe in the law and the prophets. I'm here because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and there will be a resurrection of the just and unjust. In other words, Paul masterfully turns his defense away from his confession of guilt and towards a confession of faith. And I think that's really good to remember because sometimes when we're in the middle of a trial, We can think all we need to do is get out of the trial, get out of the difficulty, get out of the place where we're being accused so that we can get back to mission, so we can get healed up and get back to mission. But here, for Paul, the trial was not a distraction to the mission. It was the mission. Paul seizes this opportunity of being in front of the Jews and in front of of Felix to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, verse 27 reminds us that Paul remained in prison, listen to this, for two years. Two years. Paul testified to Felix for two years. Paul the apostle sidelined, tucked away in a jail for two years. You know, there's a sense where on one level, this seems like such a waste of talent. I mean, you've got the Apostle Paul. He's been to the third heaven. He's seen Jesus Christ. He's capable of preaching in almost any country of the world and having revival break out. It seems like such a waste of talent to confine a man of Paul's gift to two people, Felix and Drusilla, for two years. I don't get it. I don't get it. But isn't it true that there's always a certain mystery to the mission? You know, where just it's not a transactional thing where we do this and we get this, where we sow these seeds at this time in the life of our children, and therefore we get this. It, it just doesn't work like that. 
God says to us, listen, this is where I want you to be. This is who I want you to be in the world in which I've called you. I want you to be sowers. Go sow. Don't worry about the reaping. I'll take care of the reaping. I'll reap in ways in your life that you'll never even know. You're out there sowing the seed. You're expecting a conversion. You don't even realize that by sowing in that field, by sowing in that trial, you're reaping within your character. You're going deeper in who I am before you. You're understanding the gospel for so much more than you ever did. You're encountering me in a new way. There is this mystery about mission that it's so hard to fathom. And so, yeah, God, God will sometimes sideline even somebody as, as, as significant as Paul in order to get a message to Felix, in order to get a message to, to Drusilla, in order to get a message to your one life. Listen, that trial that you're going through right now, and I don't know what it is, but, you know, the Spirit of God has probably been making connections for you even as you're listening to this message. And when you hear trial, you're thinking about this one thing. You're thinking about where you are right now. That trial is not a distraction. That trial is not an attempt for God to sideline you in your life or in his relationship with you or even in the mission that you're called to. That trial may indeed be his intention of delivering you right to the doorstep of Felix. He's got a message for Drusilla, and so he gave you a trial. So those those regular visits to the doctor's office that you're making right now or the, you know, the damage that your car has because you had the accident or, or, or whatever took place and you're in front of the mechanic who you never expected to talk to or you lost your job and now you're connecting with all these people and networking that you would have never known in any other way. That's not, that, that, that's not happening randomly. It's happening because God has put you in a trial for a mission. And so God says, cheer up. I'm not punishing you. That's not what this is about. This trial is my way to introduce you to Felix. I want to put you in front of Felix and Drusilla because I've got a message for them. Now, don't, don't concern yourself with whether they're going to hear and repent. Pray for that, but that's not your concern. That has to do with me and the Spirit of God working upon them. You just sow. Just so, three months, six months, one year, two years, just so for my glory. We say, Lord, he has no conscience. She has no conscience. He says, that's right. Felix didn't have a conscience either. He's on one hand calling Paul, having him preach, hoping Paul's going to give him money. Paul's got nothing. He wants money off of Paul. That's the kind of man that, that he's working with. But God says, no, 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 just so. Just be there in front of Felix. We say our one light, they won't even listen to us. He says, Paul, follow Paul's example. Just be there. Just so. Just preach the word. Just keep doing it. Be faithful. You know, we think sometimes it's just, it's, it's just too great of a cost, Lord. Paul, for two years, me in this situation, it just seems like it costs too much. God says, no, it's what the mission really means. You know, earlier I mentioned that advertisement that was run by Ernest Shackleton. I, I, I read the advertisement, but I intentionally did not mention the response that took place to the advertisement because there was something that Shackleton wrote after he, after he published the advertisement and received the response where he wrote ultimately, quote, this is what he said, quote, it seemed 
as though all the men in Britain were determined to accompany me. The response was so overwhelming. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that that spelling out the cost not only didn't frighten people away, but it actually attracted men to the mission. The claim of the mission drew them to the cause of the mission. And as I read that, I just thought, Lord, may that have the same effect upon us so that we might see the claim, the true claims of our cause as a sacrifice worth making and that we might make it faithfully. Even if it's in front of Felix, make the sacrifice faithfully, recognizing that we are called to sow and that God will ultimately bring the harvest. Let's pray.